Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, July 20th, 2018. Going to do a more Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermons on Jude. They're that good. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying Instead of the Word of God, you know, weird how that works, over and again we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, like it's not even close. People aren't even trying anymore, and it's just utterly miserable. Now, to help you be able to spot the miserableness that is preaching and teaching today, it requires you to not only be exposed to uh, what's wrong and why it's wrong, but also get to hear what exegetical preaching sounds like. Exegetical preaching that works through a text, properly distinguishes between God's law and the gospel, proclaims Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins as the solution to the problem that we all face as human beings, and uh, and exalts Christ. That's kind of the idea. And so... Uh, on our Friday segments during the summer here, we are playing a series uh, by Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley as he's been working his way through the epistle of Jude. And we're up to the next one, next two in the series. We'll play two of them today. Uh, the next one is uh, The Danger of False Teachers, and then after the break, The Prophecy of Enoch. So let's get right to it. Here is Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom, and his message titled, The Danger of False Teachers. Our scripture reading this evening is the epistle of Jude. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. That is to say that they had the same mother, Mary, but 
Jude was the natural son of Joseph, her husband. He seemed only to have been converted after the resurrection of Christ, but became a leader in the church, and he writes warning about false teachers and exhorting Christians to contend earnestly for the faith. So the epistle of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Jude here in his epistle is warning against false teachers, that is, people who are in the church, who claim to be teaching about God and the Lord Jesus, and yet who are teaching contrary to God's revealed word. As we're going through this epistle, we have reached verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Jude has compared them to Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, who had neither reverence toward God nor love for his brother. He compares them to Balaam, who, for shameful gain, did those things which he ought not to have done and taught others to do the same. And to Korah, who rebelled against God's appointed order and sought to lead others astray in that same rebellion. And now he speaks of these people and how they are behaving in the church itself. They are spots in your love feasts, he says. He tells us that these people do no good. They do only evil. And that they are doomed. First of all he says they do no good. Now the word translated spots here. Other translations render it reefs. Hidden rocks. Depending on context it can be rendered either way. If we take the the idea that these are hidden rocks. It's it's a, a maritime metaphor. It's a picture, you have a a ship going along and everything seems fine on the surface but underneath there's something lurking that can do terrible damage or even sink the ship. Remember some years ago the Costa Concordia disaster where you had the captain who it seems wanted to take the ship too close to the shore and ended up running it on a rock and this enormous cruise liner ended up A total loss, wrecked, fit only to be scrapped. We might take another illustration. On the 26th of August 1922, a French dreadnought called the France was sailing along off the French coast, struck a rock, and this multi-million pound battleship sunk within four hours after hitting the rock. Hidden rocks can be dangerous, and these people are like those hidden rocks. 
These people are also spots, that is to say, they disfigure what's going on. Now, the love feast was a a fellowship meal. We must remember that Near Eastern culture, like many cultures today, was a culture of shared meals. It was a culture where people would regularly invite one another round to their houses, and it was the most natural thing in the world for Christians, for the whole church, to gather together in the various houses of the members. Probably they had no building, although they may have, even as the Apostle Paul did, he rented on one occasion the hall or the school of Tyrannus, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They may have rented somewhere. I know the, the church that I was at in South Wales for six months that started their initial meetings in an upstairs room in the local inn. Because where else are you going to get a nice big room that you can meet in? So maybe they met in rented accommodation, maybe they met in one of the houses, but they were having these regular meals together. And in these meals, they were eating and drinking and enjoying one another's company. However, there were those who were a danger and a disgrace there, these false teachers. Feasting with them, they seemed to be part of the church, and yet they were serving only themselves. It seems a similar situation is referred to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 when he writes 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 18 from first, for first of all when you come together as a church I hear there are divisions among you and in part I believe it for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you therefore when you come together in one place it is not to eat the Lord's Supper for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others and one is hungry and another is drunk. So this selfishness that one of the, that the poor, rather than being able to share the food with everybody else, find they're left out, while the rich have got the best wine and they're sharing it to the point of excess. And so Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? That was an extreme situation. It doesn't seem that in Jude's case it was that bad. But these false teachers seem to be a sort of clique unto themselves. As with many fellowship meals, you'd have people bringing food and various people bringing various things. And what you're supposed to do is all share and share alike. But instead, these people bring their own picnic baskets and saying, what's our basket? And we'll share it with our people, but not with anybody else. They serve only themselves. And the language of serving only themselves really refers back to the idea of a shepherd. That these people were laying claim to the position of teachers in the church of God. False Teachers do that. They will worm their way in. I, my brother 
So my brother belonged, well, when he was at university, he went to a, a very large evangelical church in Aberystwyth, the, the big Anglican evangelical church, and there were people in that church who were in the church not because they wanted to sit under the, the ministry of the very godly minister who was there at the time, very gifted teacher, very godly man, but because they wanted to spread their own ideas among the congregation. They were there because they wanted to act as shepherds themselves, the sort of people who set up their own private Bible studies with no approval from the leadership. And they don't seek approval because they know they won't get it because what they're trying to teach is not true. And the language of shepherding here comes really from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, reading from verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. They are those who are interested only in themselves. And false teachers always are. They're not concerned about other people. They're not concerned about the people who listen to them, who hear them. I'm reminded again of something that a a brother from Nigeria said to me once. He said, there are churches, so-called, in my country, where the pastor drives a Rolls-Royce, And the members don't even have shoes for their feet. Disgrace that situation is. Woe to the shepherds who feed only themselves. But false teachers are like that. Their concern is to to line their own nest. Reading the other week about uh, Bishop William Morgan of St Asaph. And about when he died, and this was an Elizabethan bishop, and a lot of, some of the Tudor bishops, they really enriched themselves, but Morgan was a godly man. And when he died, he was worth only a few pounds, because he had spent so much of his own money on the church. The chancellor of the cathedral was in ruins, so he rebuilt it out of his own pocket. All he owned was his own furniture, and it was of the very simplest kind. Why? Because he cared for the flock. He cared for those around about him. It's amazing the way that true shepherds do care. There was a man who was Bishop of Chester in the 19th century, William Stubbs. And William Stubbs was seeking a particular minister to go to a particular parish, but the parish was very, very poor. And the man said, look, I've got a wife and children. 
I can't go to this parish for only £200 a year. Well, said the bishop, what about £300 a year? Well, 300 I think I could do it. Good, said the bishop, then I will send three out there. I will add an extra £100 myself. The year after that, the bishop was called to be bishop of Oxford. And the clergyman thought, oh well, I have to make do and mend on 200 a year. After all, round came payday and £100 arrived from the bishop of Oxford. Every year, because he was so concerned that this parish had to have the provision that this godly man could give. The bishops, the shepherds of the flock, who feed the flock, who care for the flock, to spend and be spent for Christ, for his people. But the false teacher never feels the care of the churches. He feels only the care of himself. And why is this? They feast with you without fear. That is without the fear of God. Without that godly reverence. That godly reverence that is the very essence of the very essence of piety. So that Job says in Job 28.28, And to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. I've told the story before of how when I was at university, the college chapel was built by... The first students actually did the work at Chester University and one of the windows was given to the, to, the, to the chapel, to the university, the college it was then. And in it there's this text. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. All these students seeking to gain knowledge and the dome of this window put this text in. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. But that's precisely what these people lacked. They lacked wisdom. Because false teachers lack the fear of the Lord. If they had the fear of the Lord, if they had any reverence at all, they would flee. They would be ashamed and terrified even to begin to behave in such a way. The fear of the Lord, King Solomon says in Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools are irreverent. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so are false teachers. They are irreverent. It pains the ears to hear some of what the modern false teachers say. They are so lacking in all reverence, all respect for God. They do not fear God. And again, he uses this illustration. He says they are are clouds without water. Now that's a picture that perhaps is better appreciated in drier climes than ours. There are many times in this country where you really want the cloud to be without water. But in the dry climes of the Near East, 
then you want the cloud as it comes over to drop water and refresh the ground. And yet these, they are clouds without water. That is to say they promise a very great deal and they deliver absolutely nothing. They promise to refresh, they promise to bless and they bring absolutely nothing worthwhile. Proverbs 25.14 is probably the source of this image. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. I will impart a great gift to you, they say, and they never quite get round to doing it. The false teacher promises, do this and your life will be wonderful. Follow my way and you will be blessed. And there's no blessing in it. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, carried about by every wind of doctrine, unstable. It's fascinating to look at the history of some of these people just as a warning you look at Joseph Smith, the man who founded Mormonism, and when I was at university, there was quite a, a push by the Mormons in Chester to get to the students. And so a lot of us in the CU, we looked into Mormonism, not because we were interested in it, but to ask, well, what do they believe and teach and why are they wrong? What are the problems? And I remember sitting down with the Book of Mormon, and the funny thing is that the Book of Mormon does actually teach modern Mormonism. Because it's at the beginning of his career, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, taught that there were there was one God in one person. So that there, there was a verse in the original Book of Mormon that said, Behold the Lamb of God, even the Eternal Father. But if you go to modern Mormons, they will say to you, Well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are separate beings as well as separate gods. The Book of Mormon says that God is unique, but modern Mormon teaching says that as God is, man may become. Because Joseph Smith's beliefs just change radically over time. And false teachers are often like this, they they change radically over time, carried about hither and thither by whatever takes their fancy. There's no stability to them. Because they are not founded on the rock who is Christ. Clouds without water carried about by the wind. And then you have this image, late autumn trees without fruit. You ever been in an orchard in late autumn? And you see these trees that are bowed down by fruit. Several years ago, over a decade ago now, one of my mother's... Plum trees had so many plums it broke the tree. Late autumn, there was so much, this, the tree had become rotten in the middle and it snapped. But laden down with fruit in late, late autumn is when you expect to find fruit. So if you go and you find a tree, a fruit tree in late autumn has no fruit, it's barren, it bears nothing, it brings forth nothing. There is no fruit that is born. These men, for all their boats, they cannot bring forth anything good at all. 
twice dead. Twice dead. Pulled up by the roots. They bring forth nothing good. Secondly, they bring forth only evil. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. You go down to the beach after a great storm. You will find all kinds of detritus, flotsam and jetsam piled up on the shore. Foamed up by the sea. Thrown up there, all kinds of rubbish. Raging waves foaming up. And what do they foam up? Their own shame. It's because they are ultimately shameful. False teaching is shameful. And these in particular seem to have been antinomian. That is to say they said, we can behave how we like. We're not under any rule of life. So it doesn't matter how we live. Foaming up their own shame. They are those of whom the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, reading from verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind On earthly things whose glory is in their shame. They are foaming up their own shame. But they don't see it as their own shame. We live in a culture that is sadly lacking in shame. If it had much of a sense of shame. The event that took place last Saturday in Hanley Park would never have taken place. Because what is celebrated in these things, and I'm referring of course to the Gay Pride event, the Stoke Pride event, is shameful. It is utterly shameful. There's a great big poster on the back of one of the buildings around here advertising this Stoke Pride. And it's shameful. It's wicked and yet... These things are celebrated in our culture because people don't see them as shameful. And here were these false teachers, false teachers. Now we can all see that gay pride is shameful. You've got some people who claim to be Christians who support these things. And then again you have the, the prosperity preachers. And they should be deeply, deeply ashamed of what they're doing. The man with the Rolls Royce and the congregation in rags should be ashamed. Foaming up their own shame. They do only evil because that sort of behaviour brings disgrace on the name of Christ. For those who name the name of Christ and yet despise the poor, despise buys the poor and needy and the ordinary for that matter. They are shameful and yet they do not see it. They disgrace the church and they are wandering stars. Wandering stars. Now, in the ancient world, of course, and until quite recently, there were no sat-navs and maps could be a, were a dodgy thing. You navigated by the stars. You followed the stars. What happens if you latch on not to one of the fixed stars, but to one of the planets? 
The planets, from our perspective, move around the sky. They move. And so if you latch on to, say, you mistake Venus for the North Star, for the Pole Star, you end up wandering all over the place. These claim to be guides, but they are blind leaders of the blind. And as Jesus says, if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into the ditch. Wandering stars, they inevitably lead people astray. They do only evil. They are those whom the prophet Isaiah described in Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 and verse 20. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace, they do only evil. And thirdly, they are doomed. They are twice dead. Twice dead. That is to say that there's a sense in which the, the leaders in false teaching are people who we look at. Who Jude, who of course is guided by the Holy Spirit, says that these particular leaders are twice dead. In other words, they're already damned. And, any, and those who continue in that, they are such. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And what is the second death? The second death is spoken of again in Revelation 21 and Verse 8, that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It is damnation. It is where the impenitent go. And you look at the history of some of the most notable most terrible false teachers in the history of the church and one cannot help thinking of someone like Joseph Smith the founder of Mormonism or Brigham Young his successor or Charles Taze Russell the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses or his successor Judge Rutherford and you look at their behaviour And you cannot help concluding these are men who were given over by God. Who become worse and worse and worse as time goes on. As Joseph Smith more and more used his claim to be the prophet of God. To say to women that they should marry him in addition to his wife. To to cow his wife. To intimidate her into accepting these other women into the house. To go to his followers and to intimidate them into letting Smith take their wives. And you look at the history of this man and you conclude this is a man who was signally given over to wickedness. 
whose very life showed that he was damned altogether even before his death. And their end, their end, the blackness of darkness forever. Outer darkness, as the Lord Jesus Christ describes it. We find him referring to it in the most striking terms. In the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. We're reading from verse 11. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, in the parable of the wedding garment, in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, reading from verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness forever. It is the same as the condemnation of the the fallen angels in verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of of the great day outer darkness condemnation forever and forever it is a a terrible thing to consider the damnation of the wicked but false teachers are heading for that same destruction that judgment Destruction that does not slumber. And this is why we are to test all things. To make sure that those who claim to teach are teaching the truth as it is in Jesus. Because the false is extremely dangerous. It is destructive and it is defiling. False teachers do no good. They tickle itching ears, but they do no good. They do only evil because they teach in the name of Christ that which Christ has not taught. And they are doomed and destructive. And so we are called to test all things. To be as the Bereans, when they heard even the preaching of the apostles themselves, they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. We are to follow Christ and the truth as it is in Jesus. And to beware indeed of those who teach contrary to what God has revealed. May God grant us wisdom and the fear of God for his sake. Amen. Amen. Hmm. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, another message from Pastor Charmley as he's working his way through the epistle of Jude. 
And the next one will be called The Prophecy of Enoch. But first, let's take a break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. More of uh, Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley on the Book of Jude. Stay tuned. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct, that goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, that's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, the Bible teaches that false teachers are a real danger and threat, because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And the rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you would like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. Or if you'd like to make your gift payable, you know, do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the uh, the balance then of our program today. Uh, uh, lecture number two by Pastor Charmley, The Prophecy of Enoch. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is found in the book of Jude, the penultimate book in the New Testament, penultimate book in the Bible. And one that is written into a situation of false teaching. Jude is contending for the faith and he's 
exhorting his readers to do the same, to contend. His readers are people who know the faith, who are believers, who know their Bibles. So we read then from the epistle of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. Whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction 
But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Jude writes both to reassure his readers and to warn them. There is a great deal of warning here, but also reassurance. We've come to verse 14. And in verses 14 and 15, the great thrust of the message is reassurance that whatever things may look like, However many followers the false teachers may have, however influential they may be, God is in control. God knows God will judge. So we have this reference here to Enoch the seventh from Adam. A prophecy from Enoch. Now Enoch is a figure, in many ways a mysterious figure, who we find back in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Reading from verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch is the only one in this great list that we have of the descendants of Adam of whom we are not told, and he died. And there's a reason why we are not told, and he died, and it is very simply because he didn't die. This is spelled out for us in Hebrews 11. We have that Hebrews 11, that great chapter talking about the various heroes of the faith. So Hebrews 11 and verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because the Lord had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. So this is who Enoch is. He's referred to as the seventh from Adam. Here largely to distinguish him from other figures with the same name. And you may say, if you you look up the passage, you say, well, hang on a minute. Is Enoch the seventh from Adam? Well, not the way we count things, but the Hebrews count inclusively. So Adam is number one, Enoch is number seven. It's just a different way of counting. We would say Adam, we wouldn't put Adam in the list, they would. So inclusively he is the seventh, Adam's number one, Enoch number seven. In terms of the the direct line of the human race there. 
But the words that are quoted from him are found only here in the Bible. However, they are found in this. This is a translation of an ancient document known as the Book of Enoch. And I'll read, this is just the the beginning of what it says. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation, when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. And he took up his parables and said, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one which is to come. Concerning the elect, I said, and I took up my parable concerning them. The Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the eternal God will tread upon the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from his camp, and appear in the strength of his might from the heaven of heavens. And all shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is on the earth shall perish, and there shall be a judgment upon all. But with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. And they shall all belong to God, and they shall be prospered, and they shall all be blessed. And he will help them all, and light will appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And you can see immediately, this has these very words in now this, this book was quite popular in the time that Jude was writing. And it's quite apparent from the references he makes that his readers were people who were well up in not only their Bibles. You know, they can take verse 11 and he can just reel off Cain, Balaam, Korah. And know his readers will go, oh yes, Cain, Balaam, Korah. But he can also, in verse 9, speak about this story about Michael the Archangel. And we don't really know where that story comes from. And here he quotes the book of Enoch. What do we do with that quotation? There are some, largely the Ethiopians, who put it in their Bible. The Ethiopians actually put Enoch in their Bible, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So that's the church that Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, belonged to. But, no, we shouldn't. Rather, this is very much like what we find in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13. So Joshua 10, 13... We have this reference. And this is, I'll read from verse 12 just to give the context. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. 
So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Which is also referenced in 2 Samuel and chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And verse 18, and he told them to teach the children of Israel the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And there is then this great poetic declaration from David. Now, as far as we can tell from these two references, the book of Jasher was a book of poetry, poetical records written down in those days, which has disappeared along with practically, well indeed with absolutely all Hebrew literature other than the Bible written before the exile. So there was this book of Jasher, it doesn't exist anymore, just these fragments which are quoted in the Bible. And it doesn't mean that this book's been lost from the Bible, it means that through this book these fragments were preserved and then they are put into the Bible in God's time. So here, this book is not to be put in the Bible, but it is quoted in the Bible. And again, we just look at the content here. And as I was reading just this, this early section in the first, just the beginning of this book of known as First Enoch... I notice there's a number of similarities with things that are actually in the Bible. So, we turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, that's the, the fifth book of the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33, reading from verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. There's a notable similarity between these ancient words and the more recent words written down in this book of Enoch. In fact, the more we look at the book of Enoch, the more we find that it's drawing on a number of biblical passages and bringing them together into one statement that serves the, the purposes for which Jude, and the Holy Spirit writing through Jude, needs them. So again, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there was... And there his power was hidden. 
Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills bowed. Again, it's the same imagery of God coming in judgment. God coming to judge his people. A very notable parallel is found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. Reading from verse 15. For behold the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. And so again we have this this same imagery. This message of the, the coming judgment of the Lord. So again Psalm 97 and verse 5. Psalm 97 and verse 5, the mount, well, you read from verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad, clouds and darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about, his lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax, at the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And you see again the the similarities, the parallels, what the, the writer of this book of Enoch has almost certainly done is woven these different biblical citations together to form this book that we have. So that it is one that is very dependent in its content. Certainly this, what is in modern versions rendered or treated as the first chapter, is very, very similar to all these biblical citations and so he's taken it, Jews taken it really as something that his readers, who seem to be a very literate bunch, these are very well read people, and this book was very, very popular. It's not a, a book that teaches any sort of heresy or error, it's a book that contains first century Jews, or perhaps 1st century BC, Jewish ideas and thinking. And he takes this and points out that Enoch prophesied about these men. But there's another sense in which Enoch prophesied about these men. 
that we find again back in Genesis chapter 5. And it's one that we, because of our, well simply the fact that we read the Bible in English, tend to miss. And it's the name of Enoch's son, Methuselah. Methuselah, of course, is best known to us for being the longest lived man in the Bible. But Methuselah's name is the point here. Methuselah's name means something along the lines of when he dies, it shall come. And it's a prophecy about the flood. If you look at the years of Methuselah and the year in which the flood came and swept away that wicked world, it was the year Methuselah died. Methuselah himself was a standing prophecy that at his death the world would be judged. So he was a prediction of the judgment of the wicked, the judgment of the ungodly. And the great point here in Jude, the great point Jude is making is, remember, the judgment is certain. The Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. The Lord is coming. God's judgment isn't just a possibility. It's not just a, well, maybe God will do this. It is absolutely certain. And it is the Lord who is coming. Now, for the writer of the book of Enoch, you notice what he says in 1 Enoch 1, 9. Behold, he cometh. But Jude, behold, the Lord is coming. Why the difference? Well, because Jude is emphasizing that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge. To the writer of Enoch, it was God. And of course it is God, but it is God in Christ. So we find that... John 5.22, for the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that they should honour the the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So here we have this prophecy of judgment. And again, Jesus says, verse 27, that The Father has given him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. He is the judge. Christ is the judge. And the Lord is coming. Revelation 1-7, you have that glorious declaration made by John. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. He is coming. Christ is coming. And that's something that, again and again, we need to remember That the second advent, the second coming of Christ is a reality. The coming of the Lord is at hand, James says. James, Jude's brother says in James 
5, 8. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, he's been standing at the door for the best part of 2,000 years, but he is standing at the door. And the day of his coming is fixed. He is coming. He is coming. Now men say, well, where is the promise of his coming? Men mock and make fun of the fact. We find this is predicted itself in Second Peter chapter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, verse 3, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? But he is coming. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night, that's unexpectedly, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements that will melt with fervent heat. But the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. God, that is, will dissolve it all. Render it back into its elements that it may be remade in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Christ is coming back. To judge, and he is coming back accompanied with the angels in majesty. He comes with ten thousands of his saints, is the English translation. Literally, of course, it's holy ones. It's the Greek is hagioi, holy ones, which depending on context can mean holy people or holy angels. And here it's probably best understood as holy angels. Because we find in several places that Christ and his apostles and disciples tell us he is coming back accompanied with the majesty of the holy angels. So we find, for example, Matthew 13 and verse 41. Matthew 13:41 The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things to defend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So there the angels are involved carrying out the work of judgment. Again we find Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So again we have the angels being revealed, the angels accompanying Christ at his second advent. And again we find Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading from verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled a rest with us when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. He comes with the holy angels. 
And again, this extract from Enoch speaks of the the biblical reality that the judgment is universal. To execute judgment on all. All. Absolutely everybody. The judgment of God is universal. It is not just upon one nation. It's not just on one part of the world, but on the whole world. The judgment of everybody. So we find Revelation 20.12, for example. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Everybody. Small and great, important and unimportant. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. To judge both the living and the dead at his appearing. Christ judges absolutely everybody. So we find the Apostle Paul, when he is speaking seriously to Timothy, he says, 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now, every human being falls into one of those two categories, the living and the dead. Absolutely everybody. And it is a spiritual judgment. It is about the ungodly, the impious, those who do not regard God as holy, who do not set him apart in their hearts, who do not consider him. It's a heart attitude. The ungodly are, are those who spiritually go astray in their hearts. Perhaps the classic description of the ungodly, of the fate of the ungodly, is found in Psalm 1. I'm reading from verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And of course the, the chaff is a, a metaphor from harvesting. Before modern combine harvesters or even threshing machines, what you did was you beat out the grain and then you tossed it up into the air on a, a day with a reasonable breeze and the husk was blown away and it was the kernel, the actual grain that fell to the ground. The ungodly, it's a spiritual judgment and a judgment that is all about the truth. The ungodly have this terrible tendency this to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And this is, of course, by the creation. It is surely a terrible thing that you have those who are astronomers who can look up at the heavens and say there is no God. Or those who are biologists who can look, look within the cell and say there is no God. That's ungodliness. But the truth is there revealed. The message here that Jude wants to have to believers is remember the judgment is coming. Remember that however the ungodly, and particularly thinking here of false teachers, that is those who claim to be Christian teachers, you know, somebody has said that perhaps the, the most dangerous place in the world is a Christian bookshop, not our bookshop of course, but um, somewhere like the Methodist Book Centre across town. You go in there and remember earlier this year taking a friend who's a minister in Oxfordshire into the Methodist Book Centre and as we came out he said it's a real mixed bag in there isn't it? And it really is. There are so many, and the awful thing is so many best-selling allegedly Christian books today are not Christian at all. They are filled with ungodliness. So-called Christian television. There's so much that goes out that is ungodliness. And we can get downcast on them and think, well look, here are these, these people who are drawing the thousands and they're selling magazines in the thousands. And we can hardly get a few hundred to buy decent Christian publications today and we have such small congregations. But he says, remember, the judgment is coming. Contend. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death because the judgment is coming. But also, be encouraged. Be joyful. Because this present world is going to end. This age is going to end. The abuse of the teaching, the doctrine of the second coming, of course, is notorious. They stopped doing it now, but for, for decades the Jehovah's Witnesses went on and on with speculation about the end times. Every year you've got some idiot somewhere decides, and I, I use strong language advisedly, some idiot somewhere decides they cracked a code in the Bible, and in spite of the fact that Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour of his return, they've worked something out. And every year... The Daily Mail or whatever holds Christianity up to ridicule because of these ridiculous people. And that's why I get slightly worked up about it. And so we, we can back off from the teaching of the second coming. But we need to hold on to this great point that, it, that Christ is coming. That he is coming visibly. Behold, he is coming physically. He is coming gloriously. And he is coming to judge the living and the dead and to bring in the new age. The age where he shall reign forever and ever. He is coming. Let us therefore be encouraged and press on. Encouraged by the fact of his coming. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? 
Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.